I will be reading Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Thank you for that reading. Um, So our theme for the year is Christ vision, and we're trying to adopt the eyes of Christ as we look at the world around us and be able to see things in a new way because of the influence of Jesus in our lives and in our world. Last week we talked about a new way of viewing creation. God created all that there is, and we are surrounded by it constantly. We are surrounded by the world that God made. Our environment and everything, uh, it screams forth his goodness. It shows his creative power. It shows his existence. There's so much that can be learned and appreciated by looking at creation. And the Bible picks up on this over and over again. The Bible will talk about how... Uh, God cares for his creation. Uh, The Bible often personifies creation as shouting forth the praise and the glory of God. And that's something that I think we should live into and, and appreciate. When you do see a beautiful day outside, remember the goodness of God. When you see the sun rise in the morning, remember that God said, let there be light. Remember that Jesus is the light of the world. Paul says that you can look at the You can look at the visible things God created, and by doing so, you can see the invisible attributes of God. And I think if we adopted that mindset and we slowed down, and when we're going outside and and walking, you know, from our house to our car or something like that, just take a minute as you do so to recognize that you're walking through a world that was created by a God who loves you. You're walking through a world of a, of a, a powerful, wonderful, mighty creator. And let that give you reason to remember him when you see the trees. Remember him when you hear the birds. To worship him as you consider the work of his hand. God rejoices in the works of his hand, and perhaps we should too. And so we talked about that aspect of creation and how that, that's through the Bible. I mean, whether you're talking about animals or trees or rivers or mountains, God created it. And we should rejoice in it and let it remind us of his goodness and of who he is. Yet, as you read through the Bible, as you read through Genesis 1, you see that all of these things God created were good. Like even before he created humans, God was saying that it was good. So creation is good in and of itself, even without us. What God made is good. However, God did, the passage that was just read a moment ago, when you get to day 6... You're expecting, you know, there's, there is, Genesis 1 is highly stylistic and repetitive and a lot of it's, it's uh, words and phrases and, and you can almost predict the way that God is going to structure the next day. Uh, usually he will, it'll say, and God said, and then he'll say something. And uh, then uh, he makes that thing and then uh, he, a lot of times he'll separate, like separate light from darkness or he separated the waters below, uh, above from the waters below or he'll do some of that. He'll call it of some name, whether he calls the light day and the darkness he called night, or the dry ground he called earth, or the, the, uh, the, the firmament, or the, the, the expanse he called the heavens. Like, you can go through and he'll usually call something by a, a name. He'll usually say that it was good. 
And then you'll have that phrase, an evening and morning, there was, and then the numbered day. Like that, that's in pretty much every one of those days. You can, you can predict that one of those things is going to be there. When you get to day six, he creates the animals. And then he says that it's good. And what normally happens right there is, and there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. But that's not what you get. Instead, the structure breaks. And God does something unique right there in the second half of day six, where it then enters a new, uh, a new element to the, to the structure where he says, and let us make man in our own image. And all of a sudden, God starts having a conversation about what he's going to make next. And we haven't seen that anywhere before. And yet he does so in order to implement something new, something final, and something climactic into his creation which is humanity, human beings. Last week we talked about Christ's vision, viewing creation with the eyes of Christ. What we're going to talk about this morning is viewing humanity with the eyes of Christ. Viewing human beings and persons and us uh, with the eyes of Christ. And what our purpose is here and the value that God has given and bestowed upon us. God created humans and after doing so, he gave them a purpose in a vocation to take care of the world that he has made. And he then looked at it and said that it is very good. The language that God used to do that is that he gave them something that you don't see given to any other aspect of his creation, which is the imago Dei, the image of God. In, a, in an idolatrous society, in the ancient world, they would sometimes build temples. You know, they had temple. You had a temple in Jerusalem, but you have temples in Greece. You have temples in uh, Mesopotamia. You had temples throughout the ancient world. And one of the things that was often put into that temple was an idol or an image of the God that that temple was constructed for. When God makes this world, he creates an image for it. And the image represents him. And that one special piece of that temple of his creation that he put in there that he called his image is us. That's a valuable and that's an important idea. In fact, that word image, it actually is a word that's used throughout the Old Testament sometimes to talk about idols. In the Ten Commandments, you know, you're not supposed to make any graven images of any likeness. Uh, God created man in his own likeness and image. Like the language there is strongly uh, representative of the language of idolatry. And yet Jesus, or or God, when he created the world, he doesn't want us worshiping idols because, I think this is the logic of it, he already made his own image. His own image already exists. And he created it himself. And that image is supposed to be us. So there's no need for us to then make another image of God and then to worship that thing because that thing has no place in this uh, existence. That thing is, is a false representation. If you're wanting to learn of God by looking at something he created... You're supposed to do that by looking at us. We are supposed to reflect who he is into the world around us. We're supposed to reflect his goodness. We're supposed to reflect his character. We were created to be his image. And as such, that puts us as kind of the the pinnacle of that creative week before the Sabbath rest, where we then, in imitation of God, uh, join him in that rest. But as you look through that creation week, you see that there is something that's I don't know if you want to call it the cherry on the top, but there's something special about right there at the end of it where he creates humanity, he puts us in his image, and he wants us to rule over all of those good things that he made. 
And so because of that, yes, creation matters. God's creation absolutely matters. And I think sometimes it's a forgotten mission of his people and of the church to care for that creation. And that's something we need to remember and something we need to do. Yet, the rest of what God made is not as important as humanity that God made. Humanity is the most important part of God's creation. And you see this sometimes in some of the logic in in the New Testament uh, and, and in the rest of the Bible. But like, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is talking about not worrying and not being filled with so much anxiety, he says, consider the lilies and how beautifully clothed they are. Consider the birds and how they have food to eat. If God will take care of the lilies and of the birds, do you not think he'll take even better care of you? And the logic of that is the lilies matter to God and the birds matter to God. So yes, creation matters, but he cares even more about you. So if they can trust God, you should be able to also. Uh, in in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is talking about... Um, uh, basically, some of the rights that he has given up to serve the church and how he doesn't have to give those things up. In fact, he deserves some of the things that he has given up. He's given up the right to take on a believing wife, which he mentions. He's uh, not taken uh, money from the church at Corinth. And he goes on to describe how he could very well do that. As a matter of fact, there's, there's precedent in the Old Testament and there's precedent in Scripture for paying the one who works. And the passage he quotes is from Deuteronomy where it says, you shall not muzzle an ox while he's threshed. And and that's the passage he cites in order to say, so the one who's doing the work should get paid. Basically, let the ox eat. (laughs) Like, if he's out there doing the work, then let him eat. Uh, After he uses that verse, he says, but God's concern isn't for the ox, is it? His concern is for his people. So the, the logic of Paul's argument is, yes, you shouldn't muzzle an ox while he's threshing, but the main point of that is for you to learn a principle that the person doing the work should receive payment for the work that he's doing. And yet, he's saying, I have given up that right out of, uh, out of a couple of things. I think one, out of love, but then also because the church there was somewhat immature in the way that they viewed those things, he thought that it would reflect poorly, so he's just, he just hasn't even taken any payment from them. But the whole way he constructs that argument is based on the idea that being a person matters even more than being an animal. That we are the, the special jewel at the end of God's creation. And that goes back to the idea of Genesis chapter 1. In fact, Psalm 8, beautiful psalm. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of my favorites. And you have David out on his rooftop one night. And he's, I think, uh, I think the, the day is winding down. The sun is setting. The stars are beginning to appear. He hears the kids on the, on the, the street laughing and chattering as they go in. And, and he hears the praise of God and the voices of the kids. And he looks up and he sees the wonders and the glories of God manifest in the creation above. And he begins to contemplate, when I consider the worlds that you made, when I consider the universe, when I consider the works of your hand and the stars and all of that, what is man that you care for him or the son of man that you're concerned for him? It's like when I look at how vast and glorious and grand everything you made is, have you you ever seen one of those um, videos or one of those images that kind of show how huge and massive the universe is. It's like it'll start with like a person, then it'll zoom out to a city, then to a state, then to the country, then to the world, and then to, uh, to the planets, then to the solar system, and then it just goes further and further. And you realize that our entire solar system is just a 
back in this, like when you consider how grand and glorious the universe is, out of all of that, on one planet, these frail humans who live for a relatively short period of time and die, God seems to be awfully concerned about them. Why? Like, why is it that God would care so much about weak, frail humans who, by the way, are not only weak and frail and don't last very long and are really, really small in the grand scheme of things, like, we're also sinful. We also reject him. We also are cruel to each other. It's like there's so many reasons for God to, like, of all of the planets, this might be the one that's like, yeah, that one, you want to avoid that one. (laughs) That, That has those rough people. But that's not how it is. God actually looks with love and concern and care for the people that he made. And the psalmist is blown away by that. He says, what is man that you care about him? Or the son of man that you're concerned about him? Yet, you've made him just a little lower than the angels or or the Elohim or God. Like, you've made him just a little lower. And you've crowned him with glory and honor. It's like that insignificant speck on that planet in the midst of a vast creation. That's what he is seen worthy as crowning with glory and crowning with honor. Why did God do this? I don't think it's because we're overly impressive. And I don't think it's because we're deserving and he owes it to us. I think it's because God is love. And when he creates us, he he loves all that he created. And yet this life that we live, this image that he made for himself, he has special and unique love for it, unlike anything we'll ever be able to understand. When you read through the, the story of the Bible and you read through uh, what happened right after Eden. I mean, God, these humans that matter so much, he puts them in this glorious and beautiful garden. And they almost immediately uh, reject him and, and do the one thing he told them not to do. And they get banished from the garden. And almost immediately in the story as you're reading, they start turning to jealousy and violence. And Cain kills his brother Abel. Like, the first family we read about, and you already have murder among the siblings. That, by the way, sets a theme that goes forward in Genesis and throughout the Bible about the sibling rivalry. Anytime you meet siblings in Genesis, buckle up. There's about to be a war or something. Like, uh, siblings don't always get along in that book, whether they're throwing each other in pits or selling each other to Egypt or, or Jacob fleeing for his life from Esau or Ishmael being banished. Like, there's always a conflict among the siblings. Um, well, that starts all the way back with Cain and Abel. And Cain offered worship that was not pleasing to God, even though he was warned by God not to let his anger and evil take over. He allows it to. It ensnares him. He murders his brother, and he lies about it. So, like, like he refuses to accept responsibility for it. You read through those, and you're like, there's not, a, there's not many redeeming qualities for Cain there. He didn't worship well. He rejected God's warnings and teachings. He murdered someone out of jealousy and, and envy and anger. And then he didn't accept responsibility for it when God called him. And then when he's being banished from his family, he cries out to God saying, but other people might kill me. And one response could be, yeah, you've shown that you don't belong in a society. Like, you just killed your brother over something that was not, in the grand scheme of things, the biggest deal in the world. Like, Cain, this is your fault, and you have to reap the consequences of what you have sown. But that's not what God did, is it? Even though Cain was a murderer, and even though Cain, you could make a justifiable argument, deserved to be killed, God didn't want him to. And God gave him this mark 
It's actually a mark to keep him safe. It's a mark of salvation so that Cain will, uh, will have God as his avenger of blood uh, if anyone were to harm him. Why would God do that to a worthless human being? And because he wasn't a worthless human being, even Cain mattered to God. And that's kind of remarkable. As you read through the Bible, like the closer you are to Eden, which is God's original ideal, uh, the closer you are to seeing, I think, what God truly desires in this world, which is life and respect and care even for, for all people. You see this throughout the Bible. You see, I mean, as you keep reading, get to the book of Ruth. And this isn't a person who did anything with like an immoral person like Cain was, but Ruth is, it's an entire book of the Bible dedicated to this Gentile Moabite woman who is a foreigner, who is impoverished, and who is a widow. Someone who, to the typical uh, successful Jewish male, would have been one of the, the least likely people to care about. She has like everything. She's poor, she's a foreigner and a Moabite, and she's a widow. That's, that's an easy person to neglect as you're in the rat race of your own life thinking about what matters most. And yet we have this entire book of the Bible dedicated to the fact that God cares for the foreigner, for the widow, and for the poor. Like God cares even about the humans who would be seen as on the lower end of the spectrum of value and importance. God cares about them and loves them. Cain, whether he's an awful human, God cares about him and loves him. Ruth, who has suffered and who would so often be neglected in societies, God cares about and loves. And I think that's the reason why when you read through what our responsibility is to one another, pure and undefiled religion before God is that we visit the orphans or, or care for the orphans and the widows in their time of need and keep on oneself uh, unstained from the world. Like, we're supposed to care about the people, the orphans and the widows who would so often be neglected. We shouldn't neglect them because they matter to God. When Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about loving your enemies and blessing those who persecute you and praying and doing good for those who do bad to you, why in the world would we do that? Have they, do they deserve that? I don't think he says that they deserve that. I don't think it's rooted in, in what they've earned. It's rooted in the fact that they're created in the very likeness and image of God, and they have his intrinsic value and worth. And so we treat humanity with utmost respect and love because God loves humanity. And it doesn't really matter what end of the spectrum of, of humanity you're looking at, where they're from, or what they look like. And this, this is some of the reasons why the gospel is such a valuable and beautiful idea that through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, he has broken down the walls that separate humans so that all people, regardless of nation, uh, gender, socioeconomic status, whether you're slave or whether you're free, you all become one family in Christ because that matters to God. All humans matter to God. And he sees us as valuable. He sees us as worthy of life. He sees us as people worth dying for. And that's where you get to the most bizarre story of the gospel is that he not only saw those insignificant, sinful people on that tiny planet in the midst of a vast universe as worthy of dignity and life, and he loved them, and he crowned them with glory and honor, Psalm 8 says, but he loved them enough to give himself to become one and then to die for them. You know, uh, one of the ways you can tell how much something is worth to a person 
is how much they're willing to, to pay for it. Um, you know, I've, I've, I like gum, but I'm going to spend more on my house than I am a stick of gum because uh, gum, while I might like it, is not nearly as valuable as a home to live in. I pay a lot more for a house than, than that. And you can, you can tell how much something matters to a person by how much they're willing to sacrifice for it, how much they're willing to pay for it. And I would say that there's no price that's ever been paid for anything greater than the price that God paid for us, for you and for me and for every person in this world, whether you like them or don't like them, whether they look like you or don't look, whether they vote like you or don't vote like you, whether they are good looking or whether they're not so good looking. All of these people Jesus loved enough to die for to give himself for. Jesus made himself nothing and took on the form of a bondservant, and he became obedient to the point of death, even the disgraceful, despised, painful, and agonizing death on a cross. And he did that because others mattered. He did it because he valued them more than he valued his own comfort, his own peace, his own rights, his, his, his life. And he values us that much. I want to read, as we bring our lesson to a close, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, I think, in some pretty beautiful ways, depicts the love that God has for humanity. The love that he has for you and for me, and the depths to which that love brought him for our sake. And then let that be a reminder to us. If God views humans with that much self-sacrifice and love... How ought we to view them who are created in the likeness of image of God and who are supposed to, as children of him, imitate him? Romans chapter 5, verse 3 and following. Paul writes, and not only this, but we also, we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. And I love his description of how even through hardships and tribulation, you can still maintain hope. Like, why would you have hope? That last phrase, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. Hope doesn't disappoint because we have the love of God poured out within us, which is a constant stream and spring that, uh, that brings hope into our world and hope into our lives. Why do we know this? Verse 6, because while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone may dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if we were, if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, so much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. A couple of things about this passage uh, that are, are beautiful and mind-boggling. If you look at the descriptions of who, of who we were in our relationship with God, uh, you have in verse 6, we were helpless, ungodly. Verse 8, we were sinners. And in verse 10, we were enemies. Helpless, ungodly, sinful enemies of God. 
And yet, there has been reconciliation, which causes us to rejoice and to exalt and to worship. How did that reconciliation take place? Through the demonstration of the love of God through Jesus on the cross. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us. He loved us enough to show that even though we have been enemies, he still cared for reconciliation. Now, one of the things that's truly fascinating about that is if we need reconciliation with God— Reconciliation usually happens because, or or is usually needed, because of some sort of fault or some sort of sin or some sort of uh, betrayal that took place. Who was the one who betrayed who in uh, in that relationship? It wasn't God who betrayed us, and so God made it up to us by sending Jesus. It's the reverse. We were the ones who betrayed him. We were the ones who rejected him. And so we're the ones who owe him some sort of great gift so that he'll accept us back. Yet God didn't wait for a big gift for us or from us. He instead took the initiative to bring about that reconciliation by offering his son in love for our redemption and our salvation. And that's a reason that we can hope each and every day. And that's the greatest evidence that there is that humanity matters to God. He loves us. He died for us. He saves us. Let's rejoice in that. Let's treat each other with that kind of love as well. Let's look around the world and see that every person you meet is a person that Jesus loves and died for. And let's remember that as we talk about others and the way we treat others and our generosity towards others. Let's remember that humanity matters to God. Now, if there's anyone here who finds yourself alienated from God in need of reconciliation, that reconciliation is offered to you right now. You can name Jesus as Lord of your life, have your sins washed away in baptism, living for him from this point forward. If you need the help in the prayers of this church, maybe there's sins in your life that you're struggling with. We would love to help and encourage you, pray for you in any way that we can. Whether you're watching online, whether you're here, whether you want to come up front or want to talk to one of our elders in the back, we pray that you would let that be known and come while we stand and sing.